It was John MacArthur who said that Christian faithfulness is forged in the furnace of adversity. It's one thing to be faithful to God in moments of comfort. It's another thing to be faithful to God in moments of chaos. It's one thing to be faithful to God in times of tragedy. It's another thing to be faithful to God in times of triumph. It's one thing to be faithful to God in moments of success. It's another thing to be faithful to God in moments of strife. Christian faithfulness is forged in the furnace of adversity. Today we continue our five-part sermon series entitled High Five, Five Sermons from the Last Five Years. The truth of that statement by John MacArthur is no better illustrated than in today's message. Coming in at number three is the oldest sermon of the bunch. It was originally preached on March the 15th, 2015. And though more than five years span the original preaching of this sermon to this date, I think that today this sermon is very timely and very applicable. So this morning I invite you to take your Bible and turn to the Old Testament book of Daniel, chapter 3. I want to read in your hearing verses 16 to 30. Once you've found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. Daniel chapter 3, I'll begin reading at verse 16 and preach a sermon that's entitled, Faith in a Fiasco. Daniel chapter 3, verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it, and he will rescue us. From your hand, O king. But even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you've set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and his attitude toward them changed. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual, commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men, wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent, the furnace so hot, that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, certainly, O king. He said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire. The satraps, prefects, governors, and royal advisors crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair on their heads singed. Their robes were not scorched. There was no smell of fire on them. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their very lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces and their houses be turned into piles of rubble. For no other God can save in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Our Heavenly Father, we pray. You will open up our eyes so that we may see, open our hearts 
so we may receive, open our minds so that we may think. Help me to preach today. In Jesus' name I ask it. Amen. You may be seated. One of the great obstacles to knowing the Bible is when you come to a passage of the Bible that you think you know. The temptation is to automatically dismiss this story as one of those cute, quaint, biblical stories for children. More than a few of us cut our teeth on the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We remember this fanciful story from childhood. And the great temptation is that when you and I come to this story today, we automatically have a foregone conclusion that we know what this story is about and we know how it's going to end up. For we remember that this is a story that keeps the attention of children and captures the imagination of our grandchildren. This is a story about those three Hebrew teenagers that defied the odds and they refused to bow down and worship an image of gold. They were thrown into a fiery furnace and they danced with Jesus and the Lord rescued them. We, we remember this story. It's a great story. We remember it from our childhood. But friends, let me tell you that while this story is a familiar one from childhood, there's nothing childish about this story. You might come to this story and quickly conclude, what does this story have to do with me? I'm an adult living in an adult world with adult problems. I carry adult stress. What does this story have to do with me? You may think to yourself, what can I learn from a few brash Hebrew teenagers? And my friends, this answer of this story is so appropriate for you and for me today that I want to caution us not to think that we automatically know the conclusion of the story before it even starts. The story that we come across today actually has its origin in Daniel chapter 1. It's there that we learn that King Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian army invaded and rumbled through the southern kingdom of Judah. They destroyed the capital city, Jerusalem. They kidnapped many of the best and brightest that Judah had to offer. They deported literally thousands of the Israelites, held them in captivity in Babylon. Some of those great, bright, smart teenagers that were abducted were individuals like Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego. Apparently, these four individuals knew each other and they were friends. You read in Daniel chapter 1, verse 8, that Daniel was resolved not to defile himself before the Lord. That word resolved literally means that he set it upon his heart. He set it upon his heart that he would not defile himself before God. He had made this decision a long time ago. This was a conviction that he had. I've been told years ago that a conviction is not something you hold. It's something that holds you. In this story, I take it to mean this is a conviction not just of Daniel, but also of his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Together, they had set it upon their heart not to defile themselves before the Lord. Now, why did they make such a decision? Because they were convinced that God honors those who honor him. 
So they wanted to live their life in a God-honoring way, not just in the safe confines of the southern kingdom of Judah, but also in that God-forsaken land of the Babylonians. For they were now under a foreign uh, country and a foreign ruler. They were there surrounded by foreign gods and deities, and they made the decision they would not defile themselves before God. In a real practical way, what this meant was that they did not want to eat the food that was on the king's royal table that was given to them and thereby eating that food it might make them unclean remember that these Hebrews they were raised with certain restricted dietary laws and in the Old Testament the people of God were not supposed to eat unclean food when it comes to meat that's animals that did not have a divided hoof and chewed the cud So certainly on that great royal smorgasbord, there would have been some delicacies, some animals that would have been regarded as unclean. And Daniel and his three friends had made the decision long ago, we are not going to do anything that would defile ourselves. We're not even going to eat anything that would contaminate our body. We are not going to eat anything unclean, thereby making us unclean. Because certainly some of that food on that royal table It had been partially sacrificed to pagan gods and goddesses. And probably because those barbaric Babylonians liked their steaks rare, there was probably blood still in some of that meat. And so Daniel and his three friends went to to their guard, their captain, and they said, "Uh, please, will you just give us vegetables to eat and water to drink? And the guard said to them, why would I do that? If all you eat are vegetables and all you drink is water, you will just be scrawny and, 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 and you will be malnourished. And the other friends your age, they're going to be able to eat from the choicest food of the king's royal table. And if the king sees you scrawny, guess what? He's going to have my head because of you. So Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said, just put it to a 10-day test. Over the next week and a half, just give us vegetables to eat and water to drink and then allow us to go through a physical examination and just see what shape we're in. And after that week and a half, sure enough, Daniel and his three Hebrew friends, they were better nourished and they were healthier than the other individuals their own age. Now what's the point of that? Is the point to say that a diet of vegetables to eat and water to drink is better than the choicest food of the royal table of the Babylonian empire? Well, maybe, but this much I know is true, that God honors those who honor him. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said, we will honor God by everything that we do by everything we think, by our activities, even by the food that we eat. We will honor God. Why? Because God is deserving of it. God honors those who honor him. This was a conviction that they had set upon their hearts that they would not defile themselves before God. And I've got to read between the lines here, but I think I can uh, see it in the text, that these friends made this decision long before they stood in front of the king's table. 
They didn't wait for the moment of temptation when all of the delicacies and all of the fine food was there before them for them to then decide, what are we going to do regarding the food that we eat? No, long before they even were held captive, long before they stepped foot in Babylonian soil, long before they were held uh, incarcerated, they said, we have set it upon our heart not to defile ourselves before God. They made this decision before temptation came knocking on the door of their heart. And friend, there's a great lesson in that. Don't wait for the moment of temptation for you to then decide how obedient am I gonna be to my God. If you wait for temptation, the battle's already over and it's too late today. Set it upon your heart that you will not defile yourself before God. A teenager, don't wait till Friday night You're in the back seat of the car with your girlfriend and the breathing is getting heavy and the windows are becoming fogged for you to then decide how far is too far. By then, it's too late. The battle's already over. Today, set it upon your heart that you will not defile yourself before the Lord. Don't wait till you're at the party, surrounded uh, by the Crown Royal and the, and the Budweiser and the meth and the marijuana for you to then decide what's the decision, uh, should I, what decision should I make regarding drugs and alcohol? By then it's too late, the battle's already over. Today, set it upon your heart that you will not defile yourself before the Lord. Adults, do not wait for that flirtatious glance or that awkward prolonged hug from somebody other than your spouse. For you to then decide the sacred depth of your marriage vows. By then, it's too late. The battle's already over. Today, set it upon your heart not to defile yourself before God. Don't wait for the prospect of foul language to cross your lips. Don't wait for the opportunity of gossip. Don't wait for that moment of deception to get you out uh, between a rock and a hard place. Don't wait for that moment when you are by yourself and the computer screen is in front of you and that image is only two clicks away. Don't wait for the moment of temptation for you to then decide how holy and how obedient am I going to be to God. Today, set it upon your heart that you will not defile yourself before God. The faith of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego was a forged faith. And a forged faith is both strong and secure. What do I mean by strong? I mean it's a faith where a person says, I have set it upon my heart not to defile myself before the Lord. Friends, I live in the same society you live in. It's a society of defilement. It is a society where you look around, and I'm even talking about uh, church people, and we see godly people doing ungodly things. We look in our streets of our society, and there is everything that is ruthless and risque and raunchy, and, and all things are going on. And I want you to know that we are in the business of trying to cultivate a culture where people have a strong faith in God. What does that mean? It means that they have set it upon their heart not to defile themselves before the Lord. That individuals have come to the conclusion that God honors those who honor him. And so we find the example here with Daniel and his three friends that they had a strong faith. 
where they were resolved, they were committed, they were convicted of the reality that they wanted to set it upon their heart. This was the boundary, this was the parameter that they put upon their lives that they were going to live in the midst of holiness before God even though they were in a pagan land with pagan rulers and pagan deities. They had set it upon their heart not to defile themselves before God. As you continue reading the story, you realize that Daniel was promoted and appointed in the royal court of King Nebuchadnezzar, all because he had the uncanny ability to accurately interpret dreams. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were not appointed to the royal court, but they were also given promotions, and they were promoted to be various administrators in a specific province of Babylon. As the curtain lifts on chapter 3, King Nebuchadnezzar, who is a self-absorbed, egotistical ruler, constructed an image of gold 90 feet tall and 9 feet wide. It was probably a lavish portrait of himself. He issued an executive order. The executive order said that when you hear the music, you must bow down and worship this image I have constructed. If you fail to bow down and worship this image of gold, then you will be thrown into a fiery furnace. Now, friends, it is one thing for your government to make an executive order that you got to wear a mask. It is another thing for a government to make an executive order that you have to indulge in idolatry, where you have to bow down and worship this image of gold of its ruler, King Nebuchadnezzar. Now, King Nebuchadnezzar was not demanding exclusive worship. The Babylonian empire was obnoxiously tolerant. They said, you can worship anything you want to. You can have as many gods as you want to. But Nebuchadnezzar was saying, but of all the things you worship, you must at least worship me. When you hear the music playing, you must bow down and worship me. He wasn't demanding exclusive rights of your worship, but he was declaring if you did not worship him, it would be to your own demise and you would be thrown into the fiery furnace. So every time the music played, everyone like robots bowed down and they worshiped King Nebuchadnezzar. Well, almost everybody except for those Hebrew teenagers, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Apparently, some nerdy astrologers noticed that those three Hebrew friends refused to bow down and worship the image of King Nebuchadnezzar. So they gained an audience with the king, and they said, we thought you would like to know that some of those three rebellious, um, arrogant teenagers that you deported from the southern kingdom of Judah, listen, they hear the music, but they refuse to bow down and worship you. Now, these are some of your administrators. These are some of the people high up in your administration, and we think you need to do something about it. Well, King Nebuchadnezzar had uh, seen that the favor had fallen upon Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, so he wanted to be gracious. So he called them in and gave them one more chance. Now, boys, let's be very clear. We're going to strike up the band. You're going to hear the music, and you must bow down and worship me. If you do, all things forgiven. Everything's okay. If you refuse, you'll be thrown immediately into the fiery furnace. Am I making sense? Everything clear? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said, yeah, we hear you clearly. Struck up the band. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refused to bow down and worship. 
as if in one voice. They said, O King Nebi, we don't need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. For the God that we serve is able to save us from the fiery furnace and rescue us from your hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know that we will never bow down and worship this image of gold that you have constructed. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were not being rebellious. They were striving to be righteous. They were individuals that were striving to live their life in a way that honored God because they knew that God honored those who would honor him. They knew the Ten Commandments. The first one is abundantly clear where the Lord says, you shall have no other gods before me. That word before can also be understood as besides. God demands exclusive worship in your life and mine. You shall have no other gods before me or besides me, the Lord says. The second commandment says, you shall not make for yourself an image or an idol out of anything in the heavens above, the earth beneath, or the waters below. So clearly, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they knew their Bible. They knew what God expected of them. And they were not trying to be rebellious. They were trying to be righteous. And they said, we don't have to defend ourselves, but we will not bow down to you. They had a forged faith. What does a forged faith look like? Well, first of all, it's strong. They set it upon their heart not to defile themselves before the Lord. But secondly, it's secure. Not just a strong faith, but it's a secure faith. There are a lot of great definitions of faith that I could give you. Let me give you one for our conversation this morning. That faith is trusting God regardless of the outcome. That's faith. It's trusting God regardless of the outcome. For the majority of this story, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego have no idea how it's going to turn out. They have no word from God. They have no vision of the Lord. They have no guarantee that God's going to rescue them from the fiery furnace. But they had secure faith, for they trusted God regardless of the outcome. Did you hear what they said? We don't have to defend ourselves before you in this matter. Our God is able to save us, but even if he does not, we want you to know that we will never bow down. Some have said this was blind faith. I don't think it's blind faith. I think it's biblical faith. Biblical faith has to trust God regardless of the outcome. If you have a forged faith and a forged faith is strong and secure, if you have a secure forged faith, then you will be one who can handle both promotion and persecution. In chapter 2, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, all of them are promoted by King Nebuchadnezzar. In chapter 3, uh, these three Hebrew friends are persecuted by the same hand that had just promoted them. All of them were promoted, and yet all of them were persecuted. And, and it only takes a few minutes to read from chapter 2 to chapter 3. And these guys had a faith that was strong enough to handle both promotion and persecution. If you're gonna have a forged faith that is strong and secure, you too have to be able to handle the good times and the bad, the promotion and the persecution. You've gotta be able to have a faith in God that trusts the Lord regardless of the outcome. In moments when there's health, in moments when there's disease, in moments when there is wealth, in moments when there's poverty, 
Moments when life throws at you clear blue skies and the next day life throws at you an F5 tornado that comes rumbling through your streets. You, my friends, have to have a forged faith that is strong and secure where you trust God regardless of the outcome. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego They trusted God. They were secure. Our God is able to save us. But even if he does not, we want you to know we will not bow down and worship you. The Apostle Paul will say something quite similar when he says, I know whom I have believed in. And I'm persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. Friends, I want you to know that our God is able. When the prognosis is bleak, our God is able. When the bottom line is weak, our God is able. When the pandemic is rampant, our God is able. When the marriage is on the rocks, our God is able. When the prodigal is still in the far country, our God is able. When unemployment lingers, our God is able. When the streets are set ablaze, our God is able. When there is society that's turned upside down, our God is able. I came this morning just to tell you that we serve a God and he is able to do immeasurably more we can ever ask, think, or imagine. Our God is able. King Nebuchadnezzar did not appreciate the forged faith of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, a faith that was strong and secure. Scripture says that his attitude toward them changed. Literally, the text reads, his face became distorted. He was gripped with so much anger. You could see it through his eyes. You could tell by how he clenched his teeth. His face was distorted. His attitude toward them changed. He ordered for the furnace to be heated seven times hotter than it had ever been heated before. I believe that it's seven times hotter. I also know that the number seven is the biblical number of completion. So what Nebuchadnezzar is saying is you stoke that bad boy as, as, as hot as it will go. He was furious with them, ordered for it to be heated seven times hotter than ever been heated before. He called some of his strongest men to immediately bind up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We are told that they were bound with their robes and turbans and trousers and boots still on their bodies. Why does the biblical author give us this detail? Well, for starters, I think he wants to show us the immediacy of the command It was so urgent that the king gave the command and the soldiers immediately responded. But it also reveals the vile heart of Nebuchadnezzar. He wanted these guys to be as inflammable as possible. He knew that the more clothing they had on their bodies, the more they would burn, the more painful it would be. This king is repulsive. He is vile. So he orders for the strongest men to bind them. They take them apparently up, the scripture says, took them up to the furnace, maybe towards the top of the opening of the furnace. The flames were so intense that when they opened the door, the fire reached out and killed the soldiers, causing Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego bound in all their clothing to fall into the furnace. Nebuchadnezzar pulled up a chair to watch these guys burn. And as he sat there, he noticed something quite strange. One, two, three, 
four. That doesn't make any sense. He rubbed his eyes. He scratched his head. He counted again. One, two, three, four. Four men are in there. Wait, wait, wait. One, two, three, four. He called some of his governors and some of his other administrators. He asked the question, how many men did we throw into that fiery furnace? And all of them concluded, we threw three in there. And Nebuchadnezzar said, but look, I see four men walking around. They're all unbound and unharmed. And the fourth one looks like a son of the gods. Now there's been more than a little bit of debate over the ages as to the identity of this fourth man. It was John Calvin, that Protestant reformer, who said it was an angel of God. Other individuals have said it was a messenger from the side of God. And I am pretty much convinced that that fourth man in the fiery furnace with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego was none other than Jesus Christ. I think it was Jesus, the co-eternal, co-equal God. I, I think it was Jesus. For we know that Jesus is not a creation of God. He's not another God. He's not a lesser God. He didn't just appear on the stage some 2,000 years ago in a Bethlehem barn. No, he is the Logos who's always existed. He was with God in the beginning and he was God and he still is God. So Jesus, who is the co-eternal, co-equal God, at some points in the Old Testament, he just pops up. And I think this is one of those moments when Jesus shows up, oh, I'm convinced that the fourth man in the fiery furnace is none other than Jesus. Because I believe that Nebuchadnezzar can speak about that which he does not know. After all, if God can speak through Balaam's donkey, then certainly God can speak through a politician. Can I get an amen? Because here, Nebuchadnezzar is nothing more than a pagan politician. He is a pagan ruler. And though he does not know exactly what he's saying, he's saying something that is exactly true. Because that fourth man is the son of God. I think that Jesus showed up. And he showed up not just to protect Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He showed up not so much that they would endure the fiery furnace. I think he showed up so they might enjoy the fiery furnace. You think to yourself, but pastor, how can you enjoy a fiasco? How can you enjoy chaos? It's just something that you endure, right? It's just something that you experience, right? I mean, how can we enjoy chaos? How can you enjoy a fiasco? How can you enjoy circumstances that aren't the best that they ought to be? How can you enjoy it? Well, this much I can tell you that anything with Jesus is better. And if Jesus shows up, he automatically makes it more better. I mean, if Jesus shows up in the midst of fiery furnace, automatically it gets better. Not just something that I have to endure, but it's something that I can enjoy. Why? Because there are at least two biblical principles at play. The first one is this, that nothing can thwart the will of God. There are no circumstances. There is no situation. There's no activity that can stop God's will in your life. If you are in Christ, you're part of an unstoppable force. If you are in Christ, if Christ is in you, then when you experience a fiasco, you know that all of this is going to be for your own good because you are part of something that is unstoppable. 
But the second biblical principle is this, is what Paul said in Romans chapter 8. That God works in all things to bring about good for those who love him or are called according to his purpose. All things have to include fiasco things. All things have to include chaotic things. All things have to include painful things. All things have to include tragic things. God works in all things. So regardless of the circumstance or the fiery furnace or the fiasco that you're going through, it is for your own good, beloved, because God works all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Friend, this is applicable today for us, right? I mean, we're going through COVID-19. We're walking through a pandemic that we've never experienced before. And we wonder, what is this? Is this something we just have to endure? I want to suggest maybe it's something we ought to enjoy because I know that Jesus is with us. Jesus will never leave us nor forsake us. And his will for your life cannot be thwarted. Nothing can stop God's work in your life. And all things happen for your good. Because I know that you love God and you're called according to his purpose. See, I think that Jesus showed up in the fiery furnace not so much so they would just endure it. But at some level, they just might enjoy it. Jesus came to dance with his disciples. If you give me just some homiletical license, I think that Jesus got in the fiery furnace and he taught them how to do the resurrection two-step. He taught them how to do the faith trot. He showed them what it looked like to do the messianic mamba. He, he taught them how to do the believer boogie. He came just to dance with his disciples. And I don't know about you, but sometimes when I'm in a fiery furnace, when I'm in a fiasco, when things are chaotic, I just look around and Jesus shows me what steps to take. Jesus shows me how to dance. Jesus shows me how to survive. Jesus shows me how to enjoy. Jesus shows me how to get out of it. Jesus just comes and he dances with his disciples. I know we're Baptists. And we're not supposed to dance, but I just believe that Jesus showed up in the fiery furnace just to dance with his disciples. The obedience of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego caught the attention of a pagan guy by the name of Nebuchadnezzar. Don't ever fail to remember that your testimony can help change the heart of a pagan. Nebuchadnezzar, he did not know God, but yet because of the faithfulness of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, their testimony spoke volumes so that he opened the door. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, come out and come here. And once these three Hebrew boys came out, everybody gathered around. You bet your bottom dollar everybody gathered around. They've seen a lot of people go in the furnace They've never seen anybody come out of the furnace alive. And here are the three teenagers. And as they stand around them, they notice that their bodies are not harmed. Their clothing is not scorched. Not a hair on their head is singed. And they don't even smell like smoke. Nebuchadnezzar takes evaluation of this. And he says, from this day forward, no one can speak against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. For if anyone of any nation and any language 
says anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, I will cut you. That's what the text says. I will cut you to pieces. I'll reduce your house to a pile of rubble. I will cut you. Why? Because no God can save in this way. Nebuchadnezzar does not know all that he is saying, but he is saying a mouthful. No God can save in the way that the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego saves. Friends, out of every world religion, there is only one that describes God Almighty who comes down to the furnace. Only one who describes God stepping out of the heavens and stepping into earth. There is only one religion that shows God coming to us on a rescue mission. Every other world religion tells us how we perhaps might be able to get up to God. But it's only Christianity who portrays God, who is Father, Son, and Spirit. And God the Son stepped out of heaven, stepped into earth through the birth canal of a virgin girl. He came on a rescue mission to seek and to save the lost to rescue you in the midst of a fiasco in the midst of a fiery furnace it is only God who can save in this way there is no other God no other God who can save like this at the end of chapter 3 these three Hebrew friends are once again promoted you cannot tether your life to the promotion and persecution of this world. Otherwise, you'll be on a constant roller coaster ride. Sometimes high, sometimes low, sometimes promoted, sometimes persecuted. And if you attach your identity to how the world treats you, they will take you for a ride. These three Hebrew friends, they were tied and tethered to a forged faith in God. It was a faith that was strong. It was a faith that was secure. What do I mean by strong faith? They had set it on their heart not to defile themselves before God. What do I mean by secure faith? They trusted God regardless of the outcome. There's one final thing I need to say regarding this story. And the final thing I need to say is this, that um, God may not always keep you from it but he will always keep you through it. He may not always keep you from the fiasco, but he will keep you through the fiasco. He may not keep you from the trial, but he will keep you through the trial. He may not keep you from the unemployment, but he will keep you through the unemployment. He may not keep you from the divorce, but he will keep you through the divorce. He may not keep you from the death of a child, but he will keep you through the death of a child. The Bible is stuffed with examples of this truth. God did not keep Abraham from Mount Moriah, that place where he was told to take his one and only son Isaac and go up and sacrifice him there unto the Lord. God did not keep Abraham from Mount Moriah, but he did keep Abraham through Mount Moriah. Oh, God did not keep Noah from the worldwide flood, but he kept him through the worldwide flood. God did not keep Joseph from the pit, but he kept him through the pit, placed him in the palace. God did not keep the Israelites from Egypt, but he kept them through Egypt. 
God did not keep Daniel from the lion's den, but God kept Daniel through the lion's den. God did not keep Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from experiencing the fiery furnace, but he kept them through the experience of the fiery furnace. And the greatest example is this, that God did not spare his own son, but Jesus was not kept from the cross. He was kept through the cross. Jesus endured your condemnation and mine, experienced your pain that should be leveled against you for all of eternity. And Jesus declared, it is finished. And with that, he bowed his head, gave up his spirit. They take it, took his dead body off the cross and placed him into a borrowed tomb. And on the third day, Jesus was raised from the dead. And Jesus is given the highest name that's above every name. At the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord for the glory of God. I want to submit to you this morning that the only way I'm able to have faith in a fiasco is because of Jesus. The only way that you can have faith in a fiasco is because of Jesus. It is the faith of Jesus who is the author and perfecter of our faith. It is his faith that is planted inside of us. It is his faith that he pulls out of us at a moment's notice. It is because of the faithfulness of Jesus that you and I can be faithful in a fiasco. Because though Jesus was crucified on Calvary's hill, and though he was placed into your grave and mine, on the third day he was raised from the dead. So I serve a risen Savior. And he's in the world today. And I know that he has risen, whatever men may say. I see his hand of mercy and I hear his voice of cheer. And just the time I need him, he's always near. He lives, he lives. Christ Jesus lives today. He walks with me and he talks to me a long life's narrow way. He lives, he lives. Salvation to impart. You ask me how I know he lives. He lives within my heart. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know he holds the future and life is worth the living just because he lives. Friends, I want to tell you that my faith has found a resting place in Jesus Christ because Jesus is faithful. He enables me to be faithful even in the midst of a fiasco. So this morning I wonder, do you have this faith? Do you have the faith of Christ? John MacArthur is exactly right. Christian faithfulness is forged in the furnace of adversity. And Jesus came to give you a forged faith, one that is strong and one that is secure. What do I mean by strong? I mean that you set it upon your heart not to defile yourself before God. What do I mean by secure? I mean that you trust God regardless of the outcome. You may not be able to see how it's going to all turn out. That's okay. Just inch by inch, moment by moment, day by day, you live out faith, trusting God, regardless of the outcome. This morning, I wonder, do you know this God? Do you know Jesus personally? If not, today can be the day of your salvation. Wherever you are, seated in this sanctuary, maybe seated in your living room, wherever you may be as you're listening to this message right now, you can simply call the name of the Lord and you too will be saved. All you have to do is admit to God that you're a sinner, believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins and trust that he is alive, raised from the dead. Maybe you're here and you need to accept Jesus Christ. Today is the moment of salvation for you to do it, my friend. 
But as I look out over the crowd, I see many people who know the Lord and love the Lord. But let me ask you, is your faith strong and secure in these days? I gotta be honest, there are times when my faith lets me down. Maybe better stated, I let my faith down. I wonder if there are times when you are not nearly as strong as you need to be. Maybe not as secure as you ought to be. Maybe today, afresh, you need to set it upon your heart not to defile yourself before God. Maybe today, you need to declare your trust and allegiance unto the Lord where you say, I trust you, God, regardless of the outcome. I don't know what tomorrow holds, but I know that you hold tomorrow in your hands. So maybe you're here today and you are a believer, but today you just need to come to the altar and pray and say, God, forge my faith in the midst of this furnace of adversity that we're living in here in 2020. Forge my faith so that I will have a faith that is strong and secure in you. Christian faithfulness, my friends, is forged in the furnace of adversity. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. Lord, we give you this moment of invitation where we're, we're able to respond to the Spirit's moving and leading after the proclamation of your holy word. So in this very holy moment, we pray that if there's one listening to my voice who does not know you as Savior and Lord, today that person will trust in you for salvation. If there's somebody here who's a believer, but yet their faith has faltered, forge faith today that is strong and secure. Help us to respond in the way you need us to and want us to and are calling us to. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.